Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Sunny ways, my friends. Sunny ways. The Prime Minister, who appeared to be hiding a bagel in his desk. And I uh, dressed up in an Aladdin costume. I heard her say a word that I know is distinctly unparliamentary. The word was F-A-R-T. Let's just say this is a little bit awkward. She's drinking uh, water bottles out of, uh, water out of, uh, when we have water bottles, uh, out of a plastic, uh, sorry, sorry. Sorry, and I'm really sorry. Hello, I'm Fatma Sayed, and this is The Backbench, a podcast about Canadian politics and cowboy hats as a social distancing tool and an election prop. Today on the show, election gimmicks and empty-ish promises are in full swing, but will it sway voters? And the first Black and Jewish woman to lead a federal party keeps getting undermined by her own staff. Yep, it's finally time for us to get into the Green Party and what the F is going on there. Joining me for the second week in a row is Jason Markasov, contributor at, at McLean's in Calgary, where Justin Trudeau literally rubbed elbows with his frenemies. Like a pumice stone, really. <laughs> we also have Murad Hamadi, reporter at The Logic, who loves nothing more than a good election gimmick. Yes, welcome to Not Quite Campaign Summer <laughs> in Ottawa. And Emily Nicola is back with us. She's a columnist at Le Devoir and the Montreal Gazette, and she's about to get slightly better train service. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Okay, so last episode, we came to terms with an impending election. With each day that's passed since, it's become even more obvious. The era of shameless social media, scripted attack ads, check cutting and empty-ish promises is upon us. Justin Trudeau shaved and got a haircut and now looks like the 2015 Justin Trudeau that Canada first elected. Transportation Minister Omar El-Gabra got on a train and made an announcement for a high-speed rail link between Quebec City and Toronto. Other members of cabinet have been cutting checks for industries across the country. NDP leader Jagmeet Singh was once again lauded as a TikTok star on the Toronto Star. Conservative leader Erin O'Toole put on a cowboy hat and walked through a field in a video about how he's the only federal leader who could stand up for Western Canada. And the Greens, well, we'll get to them in our next segment. Murad, what are you taking away from all these things? I have the fun job, uh, as with many of my uh, colleagues in the Parliamentary Press Gallery, of trying to figure out where the Prime Minister is going to be tomorrow and what large sum of money he's going to promise. 
uh, with, you know, the, the, the unstated sort of subtext that if the liberals aren't reelected in the election that they are promising they don't want and yet are definitely going to call sometime in the next few months, then you won't get your train. There's been at least three trains. There were at least three trains last week. In more sort of extreme cases, your hate speech legislation, uh, which was tabled two weeks ago on the final day of the session. And, you know, there's this typical thing when there's an announcement of this kind where you say, okay, you're telling us this is very important to you, you know, whether it's a train or hate speech legislation or whatever it is, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, there's going to be an election this fall. What's really important is that we're doing something. Asterix, if you reelect us. I wanted to point to, in particular, the election positioning from the opposition parties is already in full swing. You know, you saw Jagmeet's team has been putting out videos about all the things they accomplished uh, during the last parliament, which are really the things that the liberals did that the NDP say they pushed them on. But, you know, fair enough, in some of those cases that did actually happen, but that's kind of the messaging. Uh, And then, of course, that TikTok thing, which we can talk about now or later, because I have like a whole other thing about it. I'm going to give you a chance to get to TikTok. I do want to get into some of the specifics of the promises that were made, though. For example, Quebec was a major stop for the Liberals. Announcements included renewed financial support for export development programs in Longueuil, Quebec. The via rail between Quebec City and Toronto was promised, as mentioned earlier, but there was no information on earmarked money or a clear sense of a timeline. There was also money pledged for the agricultural sector for innovation, scientific activities, and cutting-edge research at Ile d'Orléans. Emily, liberals have 35 seats in Quebec. The bloc has 32. Should I be taking all these announcements as a sign that the liberals are trying to woo Quebec like crazy this fall? Uh, yes, uh, I think that's a, that's an accurate <laughs> reading of the situation, especially because the point of having an election is for the Liberals to switch their minority government for a majority and one of the places where they could have the most growth uh, definitely is Quebec. Actually, the rise of the Bloc Québécois last election took a lot of people by surprise. And so the goal is basically saying that it's not true that the Bloc Québécois is doing more for you as, you know, a Québécois than the Liberals could do. And so that's very much the intent of something like that is be saying, you know, we are there, we can do more and voting for the opposition is not an option that Quebecers should be doing. That's usually a line that comes up year after year during any election campaign. The other piece of legislation that was just stable uh, before the parliament was leaving is the piece on official languages. And I think a lot of people uh, feel very strongly about this one as well. And that's also playing in a turf the block directly based, basically saying if you care about like, you know, French language and whatnot, uh, even the liberals are going to be there for you as well. And so, yeah, that's basically the game plan, it seems like it. I'm wondering if the same game plan is at play in Alberta, which was another major stop. Jason, Conservative leader Erin O'Toole and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau were both in Calgary this past week. Trudeau and Jason Kenney, longtime enemies over climate policies and much more, met for the first time since the pandemic, and it resulted in an announcement for a green LRT with $1.5 billion promised from both the province and the federal government. The Liberals seem to be positioning themselves as green with public transport infrastructure projects, while the Conservatives keep trying to argue that they're helping to bring money into Alberta. But the Liberals also don't have any seats in Alberta right now. So is the same thing that's happening in Quebec happening in Alberta where they're trying to shoot their shot? In any normal year, it's not interesting that uh, you're seeing federal politicians come to uh, Calgary around stampede time. 
This year with the pandemic, it's, you know, the stampede's a bit of a weird thing that's still going on, but not quite. And people have to get vaccinated at certain points. And your cowboy hat at least gives you some kind of buffer around from getting too close to people. In terms of the election, yes, uh, you're right. Alberta is only one seat is NDP. The rest is all conservative. The Liberals did win four seats uh, in 2015 and then lost them all summarily in the last election. They'd like to win some back for a couple reasons. One is the closer you get to uh, the magical majority number of, what is it now, 170? If you can harvest maybe four seats again in Calgary, that sure beats, uh, you know, getting them from very hard to win areas in uh, parts of Quebec uh, that are very block friendly or conservative friendly or, say, uh, parts of uh, rural Ontario. The other thing is it's sort of a spiritual thing. It's sort of a bit of a metaphorical thing. You know, Trudeau is thinking, if I can win seats in this province where Pierre Trudeau is still, you know, a curse word and... There, you know, they, they love oil, it's conservative heartland. If I can say I went there and won a few seats again, that's great. And it's very possible this time because Alberta is not monolithic as much as everybody, including the premier, uh, likes to uh, attest that it is. There are parts of downtown Calgary uh, that act much more like uh, Mississauga than act like uh, rural Alberta. And same with Edmonton. So uh, those seats are up for grabs. It was really interesting to see uh, Aaron O'Toole here. Because conservatives normally don't have to try in Alberta. They certainly don't have to come in um, on a Thursday and make a $4 billion promise, like Aaron O'Toole did, offering uh, this restoration of this fiscal stabilization fund. It's very complex, but it's basically just a whole flack of money being promised to Alberta by O'Toole because Alberta lost so much money because of oil price dropping in the past. $4 billion is a whole lot of promise. It's more than uh, Trudeau re-announced. He didn't give, bring new money. He just reannounced old money, which is another uh, lovely election trope. That O'Toole has to uh, come here promising a whole bunch of money means that they are worried about the heartland. That he had to do that nice standing in a field uh, pandering to Albertans shows that he uh, feels like he needs to prove himself as a Western dude, even though he's not. I guess he worked on a pipeline one, so that counts. Well, I mean, on the theme of check cutting, it continued even further west, right? Because we saw an infrastructure investment of $1.3 billion in B.C., as well as an agreement that Ottawa will work with the province to reach an average of $10 per day childcare in regulated spaces for children under six years old before 2027. Murad, there are so many promised funds here. Fiscally conservative voters might have reservations. So do we think voters will be okay with this endless promised spending as we move towards a post-pandemic age? Yeah, I think, you know, the question, do deficits matter, was I think the question of maybe the 2015 election. It seems unlikely that this is going to be an election about the bottom line of the government. If it is going to be an election about the economy, you know, the future of the economy at all, certainly the question of like, how close are we to employment levels before the pandemic? How uh, effective has policy been at restoring the jobs that were lost? That is an issue that hits people uh, sort of every day. Their very sharp awareness of what's coming into their bank account and also their awareness of whether the people around them have jobs or not. In a sense, this is all monopoly money, right? Mm. Uh, a lot of it is being promised over years and years to come. It's a number that's hard to comprehend, frankly. Uh, and I think that makes it harder for people to kind of grapple with. It is the advantage of the government that they can spend money or promise money. The opposition parties don't have money to play with. And it is interesting when a leader of another party comes out and says, this is the exact amount of money I plan to spend on, you know, whatever. Uh, as, as Jason says, the exact de details of O'Toole's Alberta plan 
are not so much so important really is that it's $4 billion. You know, quite often the opposition parties are not particularly detailed in the plans that they're putting out, but even having a number in front of it is significant, I think. And that that number is so large is, again, a measure that large numbers are sort of the the base of politics these days. I was also interested to hear Trudeau talk to The Sprawl, an independent media organization out of Calgary this past weekend, and share how, you know, he said the transformation of society doesn't happen, quote, with a click of a finger, and he wants to do more work. So I'm, I'm curious, Jason, is this messaging that the liberals want a chance to keep doing the work going to be convincing for voters? Certainly. Um, the, you know, one of their big arguments is, is you're not ticked off at us yet. You're not fed up with us yet. It's not time for change. What are you going to change? Not only what are you going to change too, but what have we done to tick you off so much? And Trudeau is kind of in this sweet point that he's kind of well after most of the scandally big problematic things. The Wii scandal is pretty far in the background now. If the Wii scandal had broken like four months ago, it's all we'd be talking about right now. This is probably the first time somebody's talked about it, you know, on any candleland thing in quite a while. You can't nakedly say, yes, we want to remind you how good we are. So we are dangling all this money in front of you saying reelect us or just reminding you about how much we care about your would-be train station in Quebec. It's a big part of it. He just can't admit it. That's the trick of politics. Mm -hmm. O'Toole can say, if you elect us, we will give Alberta $4 billion. That's nice. Trudeau can say, I've given you money for a train, Alberta. You can start building that train. You use the advantages and powers that you, tools that you have uh, to help tip the scales in your favor to get reelected. And I'm also curious because if, if the liberals are saying they want to keep doing work, on the other side, we have, theoretically, we have the conservatives and Aaron O'Toole. And according to the Hill Times' Michael Harris, there are, quote, whispers that O'Toole might be headed for the rocks in the short term to be replaced by Stephen Harper as interim leader. Now, it wouldn't be an election without the specter of Stephen Harper, but but jokes aside, is, is O'Toole losing control over the Conservative Party? I think that question is dependent on whether or not there's any alternative. You know, for example, if Maxime Bernier had managed to become some sort of a political force, which he absolutely hasn't, things would be different. I think there's definitely a lot of weaknesses to Erin O'Toole's leadership in terms of his own adhesion within ranks. But I don't know if people are as suicidal as, for example, Green Party's <laughs> members, which we'll get to shortly. And so people are not necessarily happy with the leader, but not necessarily so much as to shoot themselves in, in the foot. It does show when it comes to maybe fundraising and also, you know, active party members uh, starting to volunteer during an election. But I also think that conservative voters of the spectrum of Canadian voters are one of the most likely to actually go to the polls and vote. And also the vote is concentrated in regions where the alternatives are not necessarily that strong as well, e.g. the prairies. And so what's going to be at play is more... I think regions like Ontario and maybe even the Quebec City region, when if people are like, OK, with you, but not that enthusiastic, this is when you're likely to lose some seats. To bring the conversation full circle, in the meantime, we're going to expect a lot of ads and a lot of TikToks. So, Murad, very quickly, give us your rant about Jagmeet Singh and his TikToks and whether they're going to be a, you know, swaying uh, mechanism in this election. So, Jagmeet Singh is on TikTok. Jagmeet Singh has 630,000 odd followers on TikTok. Jagmeet Singh makes TikToks regularly. The narrative that the party would like you to believe about these TikToks is that it's this brave new front in campaigning. Uh, that Jagmeet Singh is quite effective on TikTok uh, because he's authentic. 
they're not scripted. They don't schedule TikToks. He does them when they seem appropriate, when he has something to say. This is all very well and good. It's true as far as it goes. The problem with this is that two years ago, I wrote a similar story about Jagmeet Singh on Snapchat and how Jagmeet Singh's authenticity would help them play on Snapchat. In fact, one of the things that his then digital campaign manager said to me was something along the lines of, you know, when Jagmeet Singh shouts out someone on Snapchat, it's, it feels authentic. Whereas another leader doing it would feel weird, which was true at the time. Can you imagine Andrew Scheer shouting out someone on Snapchat? There's basically two problems with this. One, Jagmeet Singh does all his TikToks in English. And if you look at the map of the 2011 election when the orange wave swept Quebec, most of the writings that they've subsequently lost that helped them get that official opposition status are not on the island of Montreal. They're in and around the island of Montreal and they're in rural areas. Those are the the writings that they lost to the bloc. Those writings are not coming back because of Jagmeet Singh's English TikTok presence game. And I also frankly doubt that they're coming back if he had a strong French TikTok game. The other part of it is that a quarter of the people on TikTok are under the age of 19. Most of them can't vote. And also, as we hear every election, turnout is significantly lower among younger people. In fact, the two highest turnout elections in recent history for young people were the 2015 and 2019 elections. You know where those votes went? They went to the liberals. So I'm just saying, I know this isn't the only thing that Jagmeet Singh is doing. I know he does things other than make TikToks. It's just that I find that every election cycle, we have one of these gee whiz tech things where like it's like social media is going to change the game. And there have been specific things that social media has changed. The Doug Ford PC campaign advertised on Xbox and they got a decent return out of it. But those things need to be put into perspective. TikTok is not a is not like your campaign savior. It is a tool like any other. It is not a tool for winning elections by itself. And to be fair, the NDP isn't presenting it as the only thing, nor was the story. Me, I am guilty of this. I have written those stories, but I just think we need to have some perspective. And scene. <laughs> you mean you don't want to hear my spiel about uh, how MySpace won the election for Stephen Harper in 2005? <laughs> I can go on. Next episode. Right. Next episode. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Madam Speaker, I have a point of order. <laughs> What's your point of order, Jason? I'm going to go on my language, uh, my language bugbear. And I'm pretty sure none of you uh, use this phrase. And if you did, I'm kind of embarrassed. But uh, this one I want to strike from the political record is seat rich. Talking about the seat rich 905 area or the seat rich Quebec areas. Do you know why there are a lot of seats around the 905 and there are a lot of seats in Quebec? Because a lot of people live there. It's populous. You know, there's a reason that politicians aren't all barnstorming and spending a bunch of their campaign in Brandon at Manitoba or northern BC. It's because not many people live there. 
and we're not really calling those seat poor areas. We can just call it. We can use the word populous or something like that. Seat rich is a, like it does two things. It's it's a stupid phrase, and it makes people think that 905 has has a bunch of seats because people are pandering. I don't know. It's because people live there that there are a lot of votes to get in uh, 905 around Toronto or in. Uh, the whole province of Quebec and not in Nova Scotia. I'm sorry, Nova Scotia. There's just not enough of you to matter as much as the 905 in this election. And it's not because uh, some place is unfairly seat rich and you are seat poor. That's definitely not a point of order. But I do appreciate the constant election semantics lesson. And I hope people are listening. Madam Speaker, I have a point of order. What's your point of order, Emily? Well, I've been hearing all of last week people who are... Quebec nationalists certainly don't care about British colonial symbols, certainly don't care about monarchy, certainly don't care about the governor general, want the queen to speak French. And I'm confused about how much people are investing energy (laughs) into the language of an institution that they don't want to exist. And so uh, I would like people to actually have as a prerequisite to share in this conversation, some sort of interest in the role of the governor general. Also not a point of order, but definitely a valid gripe. It's contradictory. Madam Speaker, I have a point of order. What's your point of order, Murad? We were this week introduced to the image of Aaron O'Toole in a cowboy hat. I know he's probably worn one before, but a friend of many of us on the show, Dylan Robertson, once did a story for the Calgary Herald in which he got outfitted for the stampede. It's one of the greatest things I've ever read. And I would like to propose that any time a politician is getting into a regional getup for a uh, event, that they have to replicate that story with TV cameras, that they be required to publicize how they outfitted themselves, where they picked up their gear. Because we all know that that stuff was probably, and I don't, I'm not speaking specifically to Aaron O'Toole, but anytime someone shows up at the stampede, someone had to go out and buy that stuff for them so that they could look like regionally appropriate. And I think it is in the public interest that we be able to see that process of them putting on the costume of the region that they're going to pander in. Uh, I think that is the bare minimum we deserve, and I'd like to table a motion to that effect. That's definitely not a point of order, but I'm very excited by the idea of a Canadian politics runway show. And and now I'm thinking of who would host it. Obviously, Murad. I think I'll have to get back to you on that. <laughs> his, his, his Joan Rivers game is strong. <laughs> Trust us. So there's been rumblings of problems in the Green Party since April, but I think the backbench needs to finally get into it because it's reached the point of mutiny. Green Party leader Annamie Paul, the first black and Jewish leader of any federal party, is facing a non-confidence vote in her party on July 20th. That's next Tuesday. The vote is happening within the Green Party's federal council. This is the governing board of the party that makes a lot of decisions, like who should run for the Greens, where they should run, who gets funding, and so forth. In fact, a version of this council exists in all Canadian parties. This council is the source of all the drama that we're about to talk about. They seem to be struggling to accept Paul as their new leader after 13 years of having Elizabeth May at the helm. Let's quickly go through the Cliff's Notes version of how we got here. Bear with me, you guys. 
There were claims that senior officials within the Green Party staff were making Anime Paul's life hard beginning back in April. These tensions boiled over when Fredericton MP Jenica Atwin and BC MP Paul Manley tweeted criticism against Israel's aggression in its settlements back in May. When party leader Anami Paul called for a de-escalation of violence between Israel and Hamas, Atwin tweeted the statement was inadequate and wrote, I stand with Palestine. Anami Paul's senior staffer and family friend Noah Zatzman called these tweets anti-Semitic. After this debacle, Jenica Atwin decided to walk the aisle and become a liberal. It was the loss of this Green MP that created an opening for the Green Federal Council to criticize Anami Paul's leadership. Paul called these comments racist and misogynist. There's been so much pettiness since then. The council muted Paul in a Zoom meeting just last week. And now several members of the council are stepping down. Some of them are hardcore loyalists of Elizabeth Mays. And their last act on the federal council is to hold a non-confidence vote against Anami Paul. Jason, what are we witnessing here? Is this just the growing pains of a new leader or is it something very, very unprecedented? Oh, yes is the answer to that question. <laughs> Wait, hold on. Yes to which part? All of it. It takes a fantastic storm of crap to put your party in uh, this situation uh, probably one month out before the writ drops. There's hostility um, toward a leader um, for various reasons, um, puritanical and just gross and racist and sexist. There's how the party operates. It's the long shadow of Elizabeth May playing here that the party is, you know, for the last what, 11, 12 years, it's been Elizabeth May's show, and now the party is figuring out how to run and who's in charge. We can only speculate, right? But why isn't the party throwing to Paul the same way they did to May? Emily? <laughs> I'm sorry, I got to laugh. It's not, I'm not laughing at you. I'm just laughing at systemic anti-Black racism <laughs> and misogynoir <laughs> and, like, the double standards of life. One thing that's for sure is that in the last election, the Greens were having a more white slate of candidate than even the Conservative Party, I think. There has been accusations of racism. Uh, some of their candidates have had to withdraw mid-campaign. It's been a long-going issue. Elizabeth May has been saying borderline stuff herself at some points as well during her long tenure as uh, leader of the Green Party. And there's a lot of young people who care about, you know, of course, the environment and climate change. But there's a lot of like really weird uh, ideological subgroups within the environmental movement. People who, for example, believe that the problem is that there is too many black people in the world and that basically we should like restrict population growth in the developing world. There's a lot of white saviorism people who don't necessarily understand the relationships with indigenous people and how key it is to actually combating climate change. There's a whole lot of, you know, ideological, I think, mess within that, that sometimes just like, for example, in some key left movement, 
where you have what we call brochureless, right? People who think that class is above everything else and dismiss people who care about, you know, gender and race and whatnot as the new left. There's also, and I, you know, identity politics, there's also that as well within the green movements, people who just care about climate change so much that they don't want to hear about anything else, not understanding that everything else is actually connected to how we got to this place where climate change is real. And so that's, I think, we're talking about the mess that's going on, but we're not talking about the ideologies that are inside the Green Parties. And I think it's important to make that clear. The party was not necessarily growing outside of certain demographics because of the ideological mess that's within it. And as a result of that, they were having a leadership race and then they elected Annemie Paul. And it's like, well, Annemie Paul is going to solve everything because she exists. And I think if there's a lesson there is that if you are going to be as a person of color, especially as a woman of color, put to the leadership of an institution that's not ready for you, that doesn't understand <laughs> what change needs to happen uh, for not only you, you to be in a position of power, but for everybody that looks like you to be feeling at home within that institution, that leadership position is going to look like a glass cliff for you, meaning you're going to just be there. And then because the climate is not ready, the environment is not ready, you're basically alone there. There is going to be resistance to you existing. There's going to be conflicts around you for all sorts of motives that are never going to be clear. I think the, we're struggling to make sense of what's going on, partly because the obscurity is part of the scheme. And that is a scenario that's been happening again and again and again. And it might sound to some listeners like conspiracy theories, but there's actually a lot of studies on this glass uh, cliff phenomenon. And so, yeah, that's, I think, something for, you know, not just beyond this story to to look at is, is for people that basically the people who want to put people of color in position of leadership without actually having done the internal work to be able to figure out what were the issues that made this place so hostile to people in the color of color in the first place historically. And when that work hasn't been done and you're skipping the steps, mess ensues. There's this side of it that's about, um, you know, Anna Maple's race. Uh, I think her religious background plays into it as well. Mm -hmm. um, so there's there's the part of it that plays into her sort of symbolic importance, which a lot was made of by both the Greens and the media and everybody else when she was elected. There's also just the glass cliff aspect of it that is about the structure of that party. Um, and, uh, you know, a few years ago, I was on the predecessor of this podcast on Oppo talking about Jagmeet Singh and saying something similar about Jagmeet when he was the first person of color elected as a leader of a, a major federal party. In some ways, if you look at the Greens after the 2019 election, you think, wow, the Greens have never been better. They have three seats. That's the most they've ever had in the House of Commons. What a wonderful time to be taking control of this party. You know, the Green movement is having huge success all over the world. What better time to take over? But Anna May Paul took over after the reign of Elizabeth May. And Elizabeth May didn't go anywhere. And this may end up being the sort of fatal flaw of the Green Party is that Elizabeth May was allowed to stick around because, you know, there's long been this idea in the Green Party. They've always talked about doing politics differently. You know, they have insisted for years that the Green Party leader is, in fact, just the face of the party. Policy is determined by the, the membership. I don't think if you read Alex Ballengal at the Toronto Star, if you read his stories from a couple of years ago about the way that Liz May ran that party, I don't think you could believe she was simply the first among equals. She was that party. So 
Anna May Paul may have looked like she was coming into this wonderful situation. And in fact, it may have been simply organizationally a glass cliff that she was stepping up onto the edge of. A party that was built around this one person that didn't have the structures in place to run it as a, a serious party, a political organization that can compete for hundreds of seats across the country. A similar thing happened to Jagmeet Singh. He took over after Malkair had been ousted and then stayed on as leader. Uh, and Nathan Cullen said a couple of years ago, you know, effectively, we, le- we left the car out in the rain to rust in the two years in between. And Jagmeet Singh had to come in and rebuild the party. If you look at some of the things that the that former staffers who have left the Green Party in the last few months have said about the party organization, there is the, the racial and religious aspect of it, but simply the party organization. That was not a party that was set up for Anna Paul to win, you know, hundreds of seats across the country. This is not a party that knows how to be in a position to win. So I want to put some of your comments into context because there was a diversity study done in the Green Party that was leaked to the Toronto Star, which found that of the minority of writing associations that responded to the survey, 29% said they had no strategy to recruit equity-seeking candidates for the 2019 election. 35% said they didn't even understand what that meant. Depending on how the confidence vote goes for Anime Paul, what does the Green Party stand for right now? This is one of the big problems with the Green Party. It was this party that the safe choice, I don't like any of the the mainstream parties, but I really want to save the environment. I'm really worried about the environment. So I'll vote Green. It's a safe choice. And probably they're not going to win. A lot's happened since that. And what's really happened is that climate awareness, environmental awareness has really risen uh, to the point where even the conservatives now have some form of weird carbon tax. And the Green Party is not this fuzzy notioned party that you can just go to because you like climate. You're concerned about climate probably no matter what. And if you're not at all, you go to the Conservatives. That's pretty easy. Every other party has a choice. So that causes a problem for the Green Party, that they're not this automatic, you know, that they're not this just safe choice. So they needed to to define themselves further. Uh, And then add to that the chant, the opportunity to define yourself after Elizabeth May. And what we saw with this leadership is that, and all this tumult, is that so many people are trying to define it in different ways. Anime Paul is trying to uh, bring in the, the notion of inclusion in a way that Elizabeth May and other people were not thinking about in the same way. They were not thinking about like most normal, mature parties are. There were other candidates who wanted to bring in different directions. And none of that settled. Very few people have seen uh, elected Anime Paul and said, we are buying into her program, her platform. We believe in her. Um, the glass cliff thing is very much true. And I'm really glad it's uh, it's being brought into this conversation. because That's absolutely happened to her. And then you also have the sense that it's this party that's structured differently. So therefore, somehow the executive director of the party has this power to mute the leader on a call or they have the power to unilaterally cut her staff right before an election. You know, I don't know if this would happen to anybody who is a white male in that, that position, but just also this arrogance on the part of these staff that this is a party that is not necessarily, in some people's minds, a big electoral machine that's supposed to win seats and gain influence, but just supposed to be a party that's debating society, that's pushing issues. There is even that dissonance in some places where some of them want to win a bunch of seats. Some of them just want to be this polite debating society, hoping for the day when there's magically a personal representation and they're suddenly much more influential and can get many more seats through our voting system. 
And there's this huge disrespect for the leader. And the leader, let's keep in mind, was elected, was chosen by a huge drive of people who were new members, old members. And nobody elected the executive director of the uh, Green Party, whose name I do not know. But there's this connect where people are confused as to who's in charge of this movement we call the Green Party of Canada. Who is in charge of the Green Party right now? If it's not Anime Paul, who's running that party? And should we be concerned that the work of the party is being overshadowed by this internal political strife as we head into the election? Yes, but also campaigns matter. And I think the day that the red is drawn up is the day that it matters what state the Green Party is in, because the actual running of that campaign will determine how many seats they win. But I'd also just like to remind us all that the Green Party won three seats in the last parliament and did not hold the balance of power on anything. Nothing passed because they were for it. Nothing fell because they were against it. They just didn't have enough seats. So ultimately, we're talking about a party that's important. All the parties are important. But I think that, you know, if they continue to operate like this, they will be a sideshow. But that is also what they have been for some time. Emily, should we write off the Greens for this election? Or or, or do you have hope that the non-confidence vote might actually result in uh, strengthening enemy Paul's power and, and things will stabilize after it? Uh, we never know what can happen because uh, during a campaign, if she's doing very well, for example, in communication and whatnot, and people actually take to like her, we could see something very peculiar happen, just like we've seen stuff peculiar happen with other people who were kind of outside in the, of the box in the past, including, for example, Jack Layden. But I do think that the party being organized a different way is not what the issue is. Here in Quebec, we've seen Quebec Solidaire being organized very differently. They don't even have a party leader. They have just two spokespersons. The Parti Québécois also used to be organized in a way that's more to a national people's popular assembly or something like that, uh, with a lot of subgroups, a lot of sub-caucuses with a definite ideology. And that used to be a mess as well. But you can be messy or different without being disrespectful. And I think people hiding behind the fact that their party set up a certain way to justify disrespect, I think, is where the, the line should be drawn. And I feel like actually Actually, it would be a good thing for parties to be organized differently because the traditional way sucked and is like really patriarchal and problematic and hierarchical. But at the same way, it's when you're supposed to do things differently, it's because you're supposed to give people more of a voice and give people more of a space to be themselves and to have a fair chance, not the other way around. And so if that's the excuse, I think it's a very poor excuse. And on that note, we'll adjourn. That's The Backbench. We'll be back in two weeks. You can write us at backbench at candleland.com or find us on Twitter at backbenchcast. If you like what you hear, please follow, subscribe, rate us, tell us what you liked. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Fatma Sayed, and you can find me on Twitter at Fatma B. Sayed. Murad, where can people find you? I'm at thelogic.co and at Murad Hem on Twitter. Jason, where are you at? Uh, McLean's.ca, and I'm uh, at Markasoff on Twitter, but not TikTok because I'm too old and lame. <laughs> <laughs> and Emily, where are you? Uh, on Twitter at uh, E-M-I-L-I-E uh, underscore N-I. And I'm with uh, Le Devoir and the Montreal Gazette. You can find my columns in both those spots. This episode was produced by Tiffany Lam with additional production by Tristan Capacayone. Our executive producer is Kevin Sexton. Theme music is by Nathan Burley. Thanks for listening. Thank you.